do we see at Groundswell this year, the 26th and 27th of June, close to London, UK? Many friends of the podcast will be there. John Kempf, Abby Rose, Benedict Bozo, Henry Dimbleby, Claire Hill, Russ Carrington, Andy Cato, Tim Coates, and many, many more. See you there. Everything you thought you knew about US agriculture, the family farm myth, and successful, between brackets, regenerative farmers. And take a deep dive into the good, the bad, and the ugly. Why should we treat farming as a business and why indigenous people should run them? Welcome to another episode of Investing in Regenerative Agriculture, Investing as if the Planet Mattered, a podcast show where I talk to the pioneers in the regenerative food and agriculture space to learn more on how to put our money to work to regenerate soil, people, local communities and ecosystems while making an appropriate and fair return. Why my focus on soil and regeneration? Because so many of the pressing issues we face today have their roots in how we treat our land, grow our food and what we eat. And it's time that we as investors, big and small and consumers, start paying much more attention to the dirt slash soil underneath our feet. In March last year, we launched our membership community to make it easy for fans to support our work. And so many of you have joined as a member. We've launched different types of benefits, exclusive content, Q&A webinars with former guests, Ask Me Anything sessions, plus so much more to come in the future. For more information on the different tiers, benefits, and how to become a member, check gumroad.com slash egg or find the link below. Thank you. Welcome to another interview today with Sarah Mock, Head of Marketing and Communication at Sylvan Aqua Farms and a freelance farmer world researcher and a writer of Farming and Other F-Words. Welcome, Sarah. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I'm very much looking forward to this interview, but I want to start with a personal question. Actually, I'm also interested in the personal side of this. Why are you going so deep in ag and soil? So I actually grew up on a small family farm in Wyoming. So my roots go all the way back to the beginning. And, you know, before I went off to college, I kind of felt like I was that the world of farming and agriculture was kind of pastoral and quaint and cute and like a great place to grow up as a kid, but not necessarily the kind of important work that I felt as whatever, an arrogant rural kid that I felt like I was going to do in my life. So so what was important work you wanted to do at back then? Like work for the State Department, I guess. I went off to Georgetown to study international affairs and thought like, I'm going to be a spy or yeah, I don't know. Being a spy is a bizarrely common thread among other kids who grew up in Wyoming. I don't know if it's like some combination of like patriotism, but also worldliness and then just physical fitness, I guess. I don't genuinely don't understand where it came from, but... But there's like a big group of agents that are coming from that region, or it's just an ideal that then doesn't happen? Yeah, not agents, just kids, high school kids who want that. That's interesting. But they also end up doing it, like a significant percentage, or just trying? <laughs> no, I would just say they end up like either joining the military, which is a great first step in terms of headed being headed in that direction, or like going to off to study like international affairs, global affairs. I live in Washington, D.C. now, and there's a surprising amount of former Wyomingites here who left the state to go abroad and start, spread democracy. I don't know, whatever the things that Americans say are and have ended up many of them that I know have ended up doing environmental work at the end of the day. But yeah, so I went off to college, started learning about international affairs and basically got to a point where I was like, wow, agricultural development is such a big part of the international affairs conversation. It was so interesting to me. And it was one of the unique things that I could actually speak to that a lot of my classmates who are interested in it couldn't. That 
you know, having a background in American agriculture, which is very much driving the international picture in terms of development. And I actually got the chance to go abroad for a year. I spent six months in South Africa learning about sustainable ag and then six months in India, actually doing research with an organization that was doing like organic agricultural extension and learned a lot of really important lessons about development and about being an American abroad and about like the appropriate role for a white lady in all of these spaces. And basically the biggest kind of takeaway I got from that experience was the most impactful thing I could do for global agriculture, especially in the global South, is to go home and fix some problems with American agriculture. Because there are a lot and we export them all the time. And we pretend like exporting our problems is like a gift to other people. And they should be happy. And yeah. yeah. Yes, they should be happy with like our giant John Deere tractors and our like heavily subsidized kind of industrial style agriculture. And so Coming back to the place where I could have a big impact here in the U.S., especially in agricultural communities where I actually, you know, in agriculture in the United States, there is a tremendous like gatekeeping going on around like pedigree. Like if you didn't grow up on a farm or if you don't have all this experience in agriculture, then there's the sense that like you can't speak. You don't have a say because you don't have the background. And one, that's like very stupid and a great way to homogenize a group and keep it very homogenous. So being able to like kind of wade back into that and start asking some of the questions around like, you know, why do we gatekeep this so bad? You could because you you grew up on a farm. So you basically passed the gate without even trying. Yeah. Bit of a Trojan horse over here. (laughs) But um, yeah, and just, you know, coming back, starting to ask those questions. I actually came back to the U.S. and went straight to Silicon Valley, was super interested in ag tech, saw technology and entrepreneurship as like this really impactful way to push on agriculture, which is traditionally in the United States, very relationship oriented, very conservative, very conventional. And tech seems like this place where you're speaking in the past. I'm I'm hearing there's a but coming, but yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So, you know, where money and economic opportunity were meeting these like environmental goals and this appetite for change. Spent about two years working in ag tech. So much that I loved about it. A lot of things that basically were just like at the end of the day, I saw a lot of ag tech companies bowing under the pressure of just, you know what, like they try and have an environmental focus. They try to do a double or triple bottom line, have double or triple bottom line priorities. They try to center communities or address some kind of like justice issue. And at the end of the day, there's just not really a market appetite for that. And when you've accepted venture funding and you need to have some big deliverables, like you abandon all that stuff and you get farmers to pay you to do stuff. And the farmers who have money to pay are the farmers who want you to help them make more money doing often conventional industrial agriculture. Or if you can't help them make more money, at least make their job a lot easier or make it possible for them to farm in even bigger ways. So my experience was that in on the tech side, a lot of companies were diving in with all these high ideals and then over the course of their relatively short lifespans gave them all up and just were trying to eat the lunch of the big players that were already in agriculture, which I found kind of frustrating and didn't see it as the motivator of change that I was looking for. So at the end of my time in tech, I was like, well, how do you get paid to just ask the hard questions in agriculture? Journalism was the answer to that. I wish I had looked a little harder about how nobody makes any money in journalism. (laughs) It's kind of your question, like, how do you get paid? Like, the payment part wasn't the question, but yeah, you're... you're. Yeah. <laughs> so, ended up at RFD TV, which is a national rural, like, ag, rural and ag-focused TV network, based in Washington, D.C., during, like, right at the beginning of the Trump administration, followed for three years, you know, ag policy, 
from a journalistic perspective, did a daily story, you know, hundreds and hundreds of daily stories on what was happening in Washington, which was a, a phenomenal experience and just being totally disabused of the idea that American policy could have any impact on agriculture. So you went from tech, which doesn't have any impact, from policy. And, and then where, where did you land? <laughs> yeah, so I... Very depressed, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I took a hard look, you know, actually after having some of these realizations and realizing that these places where we've put kind of our eggs in the basket of like, you know, if we could just get policy to change, then agricultural will change. Or if we could just get tech to change, then agriculture will change. Realizing that those were the wrong eggs to put our basket in, I went back to the stories that I'd done and thought, you know, who is actually able to keep the ideas that they came into this with? And uh, weirdly, right when I started reporting, I met Chris Newman at Sylvan Aqua Farms, did a story on him. And three years later, I went back to him. And the rule, basically, in like regenerative ag among farmers I knew, especially on the East Coast of the United States, was that like farmers that I met at the beginning of my time reporting... 90% of them were out of business by the time I was freelancing. Three years, like, was a pretty good time for most of them to either have, like, dramatically changed the way they do their business, like, went from being a business to being a hobby, or just, like, left farming altogether, or had made some other big change that basically, like, they couldn't make it work, so they're gone now. And Chris Newman somehow was still around, and he was thinking about things very differently, and he was trying to make some big transitions and had come, had realized some of the same problems that I had seen. And so when I had the freedom to... You know, I was freelancing. I was doing stories in a very different way than I had when I was full time as a staff journalist. I was like, well, I might as well. Like, if I think Chris Newman and Sylvan Aqua Farms is doing some revolutionary things, and I think that this, of all the possible solutions I've seen, this seems like the most likely to succeed, might as well help. So, came on board there and have been, uh, I work with them almost full time at this point, doing marketing and communications, helping them grow their team, troubleshoot through many different levels of scale that they're going through kind of all at once, which is nuts, but super fun. And um, yeah, I mean, we're really tackling, I think, some of the big questions in agriculture in fundamentally different ways than a lot of people have ever thought about it. And do you think, I mean, compared to all the other farmers you've seen start in those three years and didn't continue, like, are there... Of course, the lessons learned, but what are the key ones that are different with Chris and the team or the ones you've seen there that really didn't work? Like, what are the big pain points, basically, you saw there and why many either went to hobby or just stopped completely or changed completely whatever they were doing? Yeah, so there's two big, especially among young, regenerative, like people who come into the work for the passion of farming or for like environmental justice reasons or for like racial justice reasons. If you don't own land, it's not going to work. The fundamental part of this conversation that like no one ever really wants to talk about is that fewer than two million Americans own three trillion dollars worth of farmland in the United States. And that just like, you know, we talk a lot about the price of food and how the price of food should be higher, especially when it's high quality food like that, which was grown with sustainable or regenerative practices. But the reality is like the price only goes so high when there's a really low price alternative around like people, you know, no matter how good. We see this in other spaces too, right? Like no matter how good your super fancy like distilled alcohol is or your super fancy restaurant is like you can have a French laundry and people will pay $250 to eat your tasting menu, but they can't do that every day. There's like a limit to how much people can possibly spend on really high priced stuff. So how farmers make money when they can't charge enough to make a living is their farmland value appreciates over time. 
It's a store of wealth and that like growth and wealth makes it possible to like keep to stay in business to cover the cost of property taxes, which are also insanely low for agricultural land in the United States. And just like, yeah, even if you are breaking even every year, as long as your property value grows, which it always does, like land values almost never drop in the United States. And they've beaten the S&P 500, as a matter of fact, as an investment class for most of the last 50 years. Yeah, as long as like as long as you have that, that's fine. And on the other hand, if you don't have that and you have to rent farmland and you're farming it regeneratively, that means your landlord is actually charging you twice because you are both paying a competitive land rent, which you're competing against conventional agriculture, which is my extracting the resources. And we know that regenerative agriculture is more costly in terms of, right, we're internalizing the costs that conventional agriculture externalizes. So basically, like, you know, when I'm a small farmer, I'm if I was like 32 years old and I go out into Virginia and I rent 10 acres and I sell at the local farmer's market, I have to charge a price that pays for my land rent and for the cost of my regenerative practices, which means I have to raise my price and ask my customers to carry the weight of double rent. And for the subsidies you're not getting, which is a missed opportunity cost and for many other things. Yeah. Yep. And if I can't do that, if my customers won't pay that price, then I just have to stomach it, which means basically like nobody in regenerative ag is paying themselves a living wage. No one is paying workers a living wage. And eventually that just like crushes you. You can only lose money for so long before you realize like, hey, I have a college degree. I'm just going to go get a job. This is called a hobby. Yeah, exactly. Maybe I can keep farming on the weekends or maybe I can do something or maybe my partner can get a, a job that can support us both and the farm. But Eventually, I know, you know, probably less than 5% of small, young, regenerative farmers that have gotten started in the last like 10 years that I know are still farming. It, you just can't. It just the economics don't work. Of the land. So the land ownership, the smallness probably is a big piece of that. So you said there are two things, a so land ownership. And what was the second? So the other thing is that is the labor challenge, which is tied directly into the cost of farmland, which is we just pretend like it's not there most of the time in regenerative ag is like, because we expect that farmers are getting like a lifestyle bonus. They just should be so chuffed to be out. Because they always have the view and they're outside. Yeah, yeah and it's beautiful. And that's what people want. And that should be enough. Well, guess what? Verizon Wireless does not accept a lifestyle check for your cell phone bill. But you need a cell phone bill even just to operate your business. The problem is that we have built in this idea and we do it in other ways in regenerative ag. It's a business. Yes. It's interesting. You mentioned it. You call it a business, which a lot of people won't, but it's absolutely crucial to call it a business. Like this is an agriculture business and we haven't been operating it as a business. Absolutely. Because it would be bankrupt a long time ago. Yeah. Exactly. And that labor question, you know, there's lots of ways we get around paying for labor, especially in regenerative. We do like lean really heavily on volunteers, which is not things that businesses do. You should not have to donate to a for-profit business. That's just not how that works. We also do like, right, you do a lot of farm apprenticeship programs and things like that, where people get paid like $100 a month to work 12 hours a day in exchange for education. There's no one regulating what it means to be like educated in regenerative ag. But, you know, those the problem of not paying for labor in agriculture is the American agriculture history. Like the whole thing is just like farmers don't pay for labor. So it's certainly not regenerative ag's problem alone, but it's not a problem that I think most regenerative farmers have taken on and tried to solve in any serious way. And they have to if you want to grow this movement and take on conventional extractive input-based ag because they don't need to make money in the normal way in the sense of selling food because they're not. And they just need to keep 
as long as they don't go bankrupt and they keep the land, they are fine because it keeps going up in price and that's the only thing they do. And they, as long as they keep their head above the water, they're okay, but not high enough to actually pay themselves. And, and that's the difficult standard. Yeah. Well, and it's, and there's this really odd thing, this really odd mindset in American ag that coming from tech was hard to put my finger on at first, but once you see it, it's hard to not see it. And I, summed it up a farmer I talked to recently who farms outside of LA and farms at you know, does value added food products that he sells at farmers markets, his whole vision of like his life and like why things have gone well for him are basically his like motto is I can't afford $15 an hour salespeople and I can't not afford $25 an hour salespeople. And it's like, yes, this is a thing we've forgotten in agriculture that when you pay people, you get better people. Like there's this idea that like all farm labor is the same and that it's all like valueless basically that you just like have to get bodies to do the work for you hands yeah basically hands yeah yeah and they're interchangeable and if you get a robot it's also fine yeah that's the exactly a robot's fine free labor's fine right the whole idea that like you can run your business with volunteers is insane if you think that your business is about value at all because value like everyone should not be able to add the same amount of value in your business you should be adding specific value and so Do you want to learn how to invest or are you an entrepreneur and want to build companies in the regenerative food and agriculture space? Or do you work in big ag and big food and want to really move the needle? We have developed a new video course for you. Find out more on investinginregenerativeagriculture.com slash course or in the show notes description below. Definitely we'll link the interview with Chris below, obviously, in the show notes. You, and I'm taking you plural here, taking a very different approach to that. We've touched upon it with Chris, but I would love to, for anybody that didn't listen, like what's, because this is a massive undertaken and also basically challenging all the things we thought about, okay, what is a farm? What is a farming family? What is a farming operation or company actually looks like? And basically deconstructing it and designing it from the ground up again. So can you walk us through what it actually looks like ideally? And then let's talk about what it looks like now, but ideally... How would we get around a lot of these or these two main issues like labor or work in general and land ownership? Sure. So in the most ideal sense, it basically those two problems are solutions to each other. If you don't have money, if you don't have revenue to pay workers, which is common in agriculture and makes sense, then how would an entrepreneur use what they do have, which is an appreciating asset to compensate people that they need to do their business with ownership? Like, that's how you do it. Startups do this. Like, this is nothing that agriculture will be, like, blazing a brand new trail and figuring it out all on their own, right? We have, like, decades and decades of... In America, you only have to be 10% employee-owned to be technically employee-owned, which means all startups are employee-owned, which I think for a lot of people, you hear employee-owned farms or communal farms, and people are immediately like, oh, it won't work. It's socialism. It's There's all these examples in history where it's broken and it's failing, and it's like, no... Employee-owned businesses are quite successful the world over. There's lots of good examples of employee-owned businesses. And owns could mean very different things, like different levels, etc. But it comes down to the essence of, I don't have a lot of cash on hand because I'm building soil, I'm building businesses, etc. But I can pay you, if you believe what we're doing here, apart from that, I pay something, obviously, because you have to eat and pay your Verizon bills. But I also, you grow in wealth because of ownership. Exactly. And that's how, you know, when I talk to farmers about 
you need to hire better people. You know, one of the big things that I hear when I talk to new farmers who are starting out or farmers who are at a place where they're trying to get to the, they're in basically like, right, this is common in other kinds of entrepreneurship. There's like a valley of doom where you're, you go from being small to being midsize. And in between those, it's a really hard scaling period that a lot of companies don't make it through. And they get to that upper level of small and they say, you know, I have all this stuff. My business is running me ragged, but I don't feel like I can afford employees. And the answer to that is always like, if you need employees, figure it out, like dig deep and find. And again, this equity question is right there. And I think people don't want to access it. And the number one reason why when I tell farmers, like, have you considered offering like an ownership path for your employees? Farmers say, well, how am I going to pass it on to my kids if I let my employees be owners? If they want to be employees, they can. Otherwise, they can't. Yes. But nobody ever says that if they are a tech entrepreneur. Like, how am I going to pass this on to my kids? Like, what are you talking about? Yeah. Could you imagine Larry Page being like, well, I'd love to have good engineers, but I really want Google to be passed on to my children. So, like, how could I possibly? I hope they're good at coding. They really do. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure they are because they've just been hanging around me for a while. So I'm sure they'll be great. It'd be great. But do you know when, I have no idea if this is a relevant question, but when that sort of concept started in tech, like that wasn't something natural, was there a period where they didn't do it and they got to the limit of that smallness and then said, okay, we just don't have the cash to pay, but we have ownership of something that might be extremely successful in the future. So let's offer that. Is Was there a moment, somebody that came up with this idea or is it, was it a gradual thing? Do you know at all? I mean, I am not the tech historian that would know the answer to that question, but I actually think, I mean, from my experience with tech companies, it starts long before like a small business is running out of money, right? Because most tech startups don't start out as small businesses. They're never like family owned. They're just, you are like a founder with a founding team maybe, and you're just going to investors and trying to raise money. And what you're selling to these investors is like a stake in your business, which means you have to have the business ownership divided up already. So it's easy to do it. Yeah. Yeah. There's not a perfect comparison there for sure. But yeah, this, the whole idea of employee ownership in agriculture and using farmland assets and other capital assets as a way to pay, to compensate employees necessitates a deep interrogation of, are you farming as an investment so that your kids can inherit it? Cause that's when you're worried about inheritance, you're worried about your investment. You're not worried about your business in that moment. So is this a business or is this an investment? I think that's an important question. And I think, honestly, American agriculture would be operating entirely differently if it was treated primarily as a business and not primarily as an investment class. But, you know, I think if we're, especially when we're talking about regenerative ag, when we're talking about changing diets, when we're talking about being more environmentally resilient, we have to be talking about farming the business, not farming the investment class. Because farming the investment class, there's just nothing. There's nothing you can do because it's just like maximum extraction, right? That's what an investment is, is how do I get the most cash? How do I optimize between long-term, long-run gain and cash today? Soil doesn't factor into that conversation. It like can't really. So if we're talking about farming as a business, then yeah, if your kid wants to become an employee and work their way into ownership, like other employees have a chance to, then great. And then you can pass that down. I mean, other... That's not uncommon in other parts of the economy, too. Law is a good example. Like, you know, if your dad was a partner at a law firm, you'll probably get a job there. You'll probably get a chance to be a partner. But are you the only person who will ever get a chance to be a partner? No. Architects is saying, yeah, yeah. No, it's very, I mean, you get a huge leg up, obviously, but you still have to work. That's the, the, and you have to prove. Well, 
And the law firm will probably die if like no other one is considered except for you. And so how would that work? In, because we now talk hypothetical, how would it work in, I would say practice, or how would it work in this example? Like what's needed to get that done? Obviously you get when you share that with farming friends that the first, I mean, as soon as they respond saying, what do I give to my kids? That means they look at it as an investment, not as a business. But let's say they say, oh, that's very interesting. What should I do? What would be your answer? Yeah. That's a tough question because I think it looks kind of different for every person because I'll talk about Silvanaqua first. Silvanaqua doesn't own any farmland. So there's not big capital assets that you can say, you know, here's, you know, our net worth. Is it in the plan to own it at some point or not? Silvanaqua is like kind of a complex and unique situation where there's like going to be an, a land trust and wealth created that way. I would say also there's like a mission focus that doesn't necessarily, for me... I am more interested in making a model that's kind of flexible and that different people can accommodate to their different situations. Because, like, I hear it, and we actually were just talking about this yesterday, the idea that, like, if I I own 500 acres and I don't want to farm it by myself and I don't want to run – because this is the fundamental problem for a lot of smallholding farmers, right? If you don't want to be the agronomist and the hydrologist and the accountant and the – like investor relations person and the marketer and the then you all of that falls to you. You're a small business owner and you have to do all that stuff or you have to hire someone to do it for you. And if you don't have money to hire people, then you need to have partners that help you do it. And that does not mean like you have to find someone and then like give them half of your business. That's not the only way to do it. And like you can write how startups do it is you offer shares and then people still buy in. It's at usually, you know, a relatively low rate. And they, it, when it's startups, it's also a relatively small amount of the company that is available to them. But, you know, I think it takes a level of sophistication, financial sophistication, basically. that And business sophistication. For sure, which all of farming should require a certain level of business sophistication that it largely does not in the United States a lot of the time. But, um, yeah, you know, I think in a lot of ways that's still being figured out in other people's operations. You know, we've been in communication with a lot of folks who are interested in this. I think it's hard... One of the other really challenging things in this space compared to, say, tech, is it's really easy to split up someone else's money between you and your partners. It's much harder to say, like, this is all my capital that I brought into this relationship and I'm going to meet it out to other people. And I think because in the U.S. there's basically no differentiation between farm wealth and family wealth. Those are interchangeable, which is problematic, right? Absolutely. Other businesses, that is not true. There is like a clear distinction between... It becomes problematic in family companies as soon as it's pretty much the same thing. And then, you know, it's a recipe for disaster. Yes, for sure. I think this is a point that I am like always trying to make, which is just like we exceptionalize agriculture in a lot of ways in basically every way possible. But the reality is it's not significantly different from most other family businesses and its problems and its challenges and its benefits in the ways that it is regulated and unregulated. And so I think in a lot of conversations I've had with people about, you know, like, why don't you consider equity? Why don't you consider like buying your employees into your business? There's a lot of like, oh, well, that maybe that works in other businesses, but not in agriculture. The answer to that is just always like, yes, it does work in agriculture. Like there's no reason it wouldn't work in agriculture. Yeah, it's a bit of the same discussion of, of many farmers like, ah, oh, but yeah, he or she is doing, I don't know, holistic grazing or 
uh, completely different ways of farming that would never work here because it's a different climate. No, it's not. Like, it's a neighbor. Like, if it works on the other side of the fence, it also works for you. If you want to, if you want to explore, you could do differently, etc. But it doesn't mean, like, it's not unique. It's very difficult to find a unique situation. Exactly. And there's so much pushback around, like, well, you know, this has been in my family all this time. This is my heritage. This is my legacy. Everyone's family business is their legacy. Everyone's family business is their heritage. And I know many people that sold it. Yeah. Yeah. And, like, guess what? If we were still paying all the cobblers in America, all the descendants of cobblers, just to cobble because, like, their parents and grandparents did it. And like, that's the thing that we like believe they should do. We would be in a very weird situation. So let's like walk away from all the arguments about like legacy and heritage. And remember that like, yes, absolutely. You inherited it and it's yours and that's fine. And it's a business and you should operate it like one. And if you are incapable of doing that, then we should be talking about like what comes next because we don't just support people doing what they want to do because, because. And it is a different sector for at least the environmental destruction and the environmental opportunity. Like it's so big in terms of simple acreage, et cetera. Like it does affect all of us. Like if you run your bicycle shop or a bicycle company in an amazing way, it does affect all of us as well. But if you run your large, large farm estate in a very destructive way, it affects everyone around you. Plus everybody far away because of climate change, et cetera. So it is all of our problem quite dramatically. And you cannot say... It is my land, so I do whatever I want, which currently is because it does affect. And at some point will come, like at some point there will be enough regulation to push you. And it's not going to stop at the gate. Like you cannot keep this out. It's sort of, sort of all of our problem. Yeah. And which is all such good points. And why it's so frustrating to see the absolute lack of environmental regulation on American farms, because it's okay. The environmental working group can basically show point source, uh, like nitrogen runoff, a phosphorus runoff from farms directly. So even the argument that, like, we can't tell which farm it came from, so how could we possibly regulate them is there's nothing left. We know. We know that the, like, the hypoxia in the Gulf of Mexico is directly due, essentially, to just farmers in Iowa. There's no questions left. And the idea that we taxpayers pay north, have been paying more than $5 billion directly to private farms for the last 25 years, while this problem has gotten worse and worse. And somehow the conversation at the end of that reality is... How can we pay farmers to do better? We already paid. We've been paying all this time. And we didn't get the result we wanted. Yeah. As a matter of fact, the Gulf Hypoxia Task Force met in 2007 and made the goal to reduce runoff to the Gulf by 50% by 2015. In 2015, they reevaluated and found that they had that actually increased runoff by 20%. So they're actively moving in the wrong direction. Payments directly to farmers have gone up over that time period, resulting in $46 billion in direct payments last year that overwhelmingly went to the top like 1% of farmers, which for me is a very discouraging part of this whole conversation about like, you know, how can companies get in on paying farmers to do more regenerative practices? Sorry, we've already paid. We've already like sunk a lot of money into these farms. Like taxpayers at this point, it's hard to say how they are not the number one investors Investors in businesses get a say. They get to tell you how to do your job by definition. Like when you're an entrepreneur and you've taken investment money, you have a boss now, your investors. And that is just like never part of this conversation. It's always about how farmers are in a bad situation and how they don't have the resources they need to do better. And that is just not true. And that's, I think, a very frustrating part of this whole thing. And it, it, it comes from this idea of like, right, that these are farm families and they're just 
they're just individuals like trying to do what's best for their land and trying to perpetuate their legacy. But the reality is farms are businesses, which is okay. It's fine for farms to be businesses. That's always what they've been. But let's treat them as businesses. Exactly. We have to treat them as businesses. Putting family in front of the word farm does not mean that it's not profit seeking. It has to be profit seeking. But it's so cute on the pictures of the products I buy. I mean, no, no, it's fascinating. You put a, I'll link the article below. You pick the fight with the carbon credit uh, peoples. I think you got a lot of response to that uh, recently. Um, let's see when this interview comes out. But it's uh, for sure you picked a fight with somebody else before that. But the image of the struggling American, and I think we can actually take that to many other continents, a family farm that is really, we should really pity and the truth is, and if you look here in Europe on the direct payments, go to the top one or 2% of the farmers that absolutely don't need it and are by far the most destructive farmers we can possibly find and are really not the people you want to pay. And we're not getting results, by the way, for paying. And yeah, it's a mind boggling And it grew out of sort of, I wouldn't say necessity, but it, it didn't, nobody designed the system to do that. But it's somehow over the last 30, 40, 50 years, depending on where you start, it grew that way and we completely distorted anything. And you get paid for plowing and you get paid for many other things that let's say are not growing food, <laughs> definitely not nutrient dense, but not even food in general. And that's, it's pretty distorting, but it's interesting. Like this is a depressing picture, but do you see, a, um, is something changing? Is something, are we getting to a breaking point of all of this or are we going to see that in our lifetime? What do you think? I can only speak to the U.S. I'm very hyper-focused, for better or worse. But I think between the massive amount of payments that farmers got during the Trump administration, north of $100 billion in direct payments, and the fact that we just spent 13 months and will likely spend six or eight or 10 more months being in this pandemic, which has impoverished people, left tens of millions of Americans hungry, and we completely botched any food aid. We continue the most recent coronavirus aid bill that's going through. Congress has more payments for farmers, more flexibility for them. We know that paying farmers does not contribute to food security. We know that farm prices are way up. International commodity prices are at 10-year highs right now, and they're still going to get more payments. I think what happened in America's meat packing plants, unfortunately, since literally the jungle was written a hundred years ago, we've never cared about meatpacking workers. We only care about food safety, but that's a whole nother question. And, and is absolutely in the United States about racism and where we think that like the right place for immigrants is. But I think that there is a opportunity in this moment to say enough. Yeah. For people to say like, hey, I'm done paying farmers. They're not doing the right thing. You know, I think the farmer I talked about in that article was is getting paid f for planting cover crops. Cover crops is not enough. First of all, you can already get paid for it in, in the state of Maryland where he farms. You can already get paid for it by the USDA. And he literally said in another article, not the main article where he talked about getting the money, but in another article that it has been a net benefit for his business just by existing because it's limited the amount of passes he has to make in the field. So he's saving on diesel. He's saving on, right? He would have done this anyway. That's not what we're supposed to be paying for. And basically what we're rewarding at this point is holdouts. We're telling farmers, the longer you hold out, the more we'll pay. The longer you hold, <laughs> someone made this analogy to me the other day. It's literally like farmers are standing in their yard with a chainsaw on their hands saying, if you don't pay me, I'll cut this tree down. And we're saying, please keep the engine running, but don't touch the tree yet. Yeah. And we're putting diesel in the, or petrol in the, in the machine just to continue running. And we're just letting it happen. Instead of just saying like, you know, putting a fence around the tree or taking away the chainsaw, 
we're just saying like, okay, okay, don't worry, we'll pay, we'll pay. And it's like, no, no, we already paid. Like, this is over. We're not doing this anymore. And, you know, I think I was actually just reading a fascinating part of The End of the Myth, Greg Grandin's book that he published last year and won a Pulitzer for. He talks about basically during the New Deal in the United States that New Deal Democrats in particular, like, had gone to Mexico, spent a lot of time with the Mexican government at a time when the Mexican government was doing massive land reform and how many benefits that the Mexican government saw and the Mexican people saw and also how much like FDR's basically like administration, including people at the USDA, were excited about like, oh, we see how many of our issues in the United States are tied directly to the fact that like way too few people own way too much land. And that's the thing. And like I talk about this quite a bit in the book, but like that owning too much land is what causes labor exploitation. Like if you own too much land and you can't monetize it, then you have to get labor for free to work it. There's no other way. And that like, you know, it led to chattel slavery. It led to the Bracero program. It led to, you know, Japanese and Asian American racism in California. It led to today's like modern immigration system. The evidence is everywhere in American agriculture that we have too much land in too few hands that can't afford to work it. And so we like abuse labor to get it done. And all we do is further concentrate the land in fewer and fewer hands. And at the end of all of that, we get sad that farmers are so old and that young farmers can't find a way back to the land. But of course they can't. Saying why don't more farmers own farmland, young farmers own farmland is like saying, why don't more young people have trust funds? You need money to begin with. So how does that go into Sylvan Aqua? As you mentioned before, you don't own the land. You're farming and you don't own the land in the future. There will be a land trust, etc. How does that work on fixing that land ownership issue or partly fixing it or at least make a step in the right direction? What's the thinking and more importantly, actually the doing there? Yeah, so two different things are happening. So on the one hand, we are very lucky. Chris Newman built this amazing business, which, you know, I think in Sylvan Aqua's case, the brand alone has a lot of value. Again, another thing that a lot of farms don't think about very thoughtfully is that like, yes, when you build a successful business, things besides just your tractor and your acres have value. Like the Instagram account, yeah. (laughs) And the goodwill and the sales and actually having clients and that whole infrastructure. Exactly. The sales channels, all of that stuff has value. So we are at this moment, even though we don't have land and even though we can't do the thing of like, yeah, everyone gets some land so that we all, even when, you know, our paychecks aren't very big, at least we know we're growing long-term wealth. We don't have that opportunity, but we do, we are growing a business, a real business that has real value. And every person at Sylvan Aqua has a path to ownership. I am personally on a path to, a path to partnership. So not like exclusive ownership, but I'm on a path to partnership, which is really exciting for me. Coming from journalism where that's not the case. Never the case. Or you're sort of, a paid, I mean, book, obviously, but it really has to go well to make any sense and or the Substack world of this, uh, the premium, etc. But yeah, I think ownership in a, in a farming business and a food business is more interesting. Oh, for sure. Not to mention that it's just it's a team and working with a good team is never something to be taken for granted because it's rare. So that's how we're dealing with ownership and partnership on our end. And then in addition to, so that's within Sylvan Aqua Farms, which is kind of the central umbrella of the organization. And then within the system, There's networked farms. So we have right now 40 Acres Community Ranch and Choptico Farm, which are both separate businesses with their own owners owned by 40 Acres Community Ranch is black owned and run right now. And Choptico is a like a vegetable produce operation that is 
currently owned and operated by this really cool group of people. So there's basically those two ways. You can either join Sylvan Aqua as like a part of one of the businesses and work your way into ownership of that business, or you could join as a business and just kind of get plugged into the network. And we have some standards around what that means, what that looks like in terms of both environmental stewardship and economic interrelation with with the other businesses in the organization. The land trust element of this and how we get the land ownership piece is a little bit further down the line for us right now. We're actually in the market, the nonprofit part of what we do, which is called Something Else Society, is going to have a land trust, going to hold some land in common that we can then, you know, distribute leases for our farms, the farms in the system. Yeah, because you don't want to be the one, like a lot of people are leasing, you're building a lot of First of all, you're building a business, you're building soil, you're rebuilding a lot of things that somebody else extracted, and then you're kicked off the land and you have to move somewhere else, which is painful, but also just very, very destructive. And you don't want that. Yes, totally. So we are, that organization will buy farmland and rent out to, you know, do like 99 year leases with the organizations in the network, which is great. One way to do, and you know, we're taking our cues in particular from people like the Hutterites in the Dakotas and Montana here in the United States, which have basically, you know, by doing many of the things that we are doing, which is like farming communally, paying people well, acting like businesses instead of small family independent farms that are really about transferring land wealth. They have just outcompeted all other land buyers in their area. Like they just it doesn't matter if they want land, they show up to an auction and they just like they just can beat every bid for land they want. And for us, you know, Sylvanoc was based in the Chesapeake Bay. This is our food shed. This is our watershed. Like we care about this land a ton and we just want to owner control and be able to have an influence over as much of this land as possible, whether that means by buying it, whether that means by leasing it or by doing a third thing, which is called farming as a service, which is where we help people do landscape management. Basically we do like indigenous landscape management for private landowners, usually like, you know, people who own like estates or big pieces of property that they would like not like manage as natural systems for hunting or fishing or outdoor recreation, whatever that looks like. Basically to influence as much as possible whenever you can buy and bring it into the commons you would do. And as you have a very, very long-term view anyway, like pieces will come on the market at some point or will be, I wouldn't say donated, but for lower prices as you've been working with some of these estates over the years. I mean, that will, will happen. I have to think of a story once, I think from a museum that, that was looking at a piece for a long, long time to buy it and basically said, yeah, we're in this business for centuries anyway. So at some point it will come. Like we'll know. Exactly. It could take 40 years, could take 50. It doesn't really matter. We're in this watershed for 100 years. At some point we'll control or at least influence most of it. And we're not tied exactly. to one piece. Yes. or so one piece. No, it doesn't really, it doesn't really matter. That's interesting. Exactly. And so to like the indigenous ethic that informs, you know, this comes from Chris Newman and also other indigenous people on our team. Yeah, I mean, agriculture in its added its essence, like operates at the landscape level. Nature doesn't care where your property line is. So it when we're talking about, you know, our ethic, it doesn't make sense to say, you know, we're just going to buy this 70 acres and we're going to take really good care of it. And like, by golly, I hope everyone else does, too. I knew it's not going to happen. Yeah, <laughs> the yeah. right way to think about it. Yeah, that's it doesn't. Yeah. You know, water that's been polluted, air that's been polluted, soil invasive species like those things do not stop at your property line so we know that if we want to rejuvenate the ecosystem around here if we want to feed our communities in a you know culturally relevant way that 
it cannot be small. We have to operate at scale. And so, yeah, we're not afraid to, one, realize that like we need hundreds of employees and we need to compensate them in basically whatever way that they need to be compensated in. We need to support lots of different kinds of businesses run in lots of different ways. It's truly a system. It's truly decentralized and it's still very much being built. That's what makes it exciting. I mean, it's interesting to go to Mondragon in Basque country, etc., where it's still being built as well, but it feels much more established with, I don't know how many banks they have and universities and one of the biggest cooperatives in the world. But this is like those guys 40, 50, 60 years ago, which is potentially, I mean, we still don't know, but it's very interesting to see that birth of a lot of these things. Yeah, hopefully. I mean, yeah, and we're, you know, one of our priorities is very much just like transparency and communication. We spend a lot of time talking on social media and elsewhere about what we're doing and just trying to get people excited, get people involved and yeah, trying to push back on some of these ideas around, you know, I'm sure that's something that Chris talked with you about was just so many good intentioned people out in the world who are just like, oh, like, let me come by the farm. Let me volunteer. Let me do whatever I can. And just like trying to change the conversation around that of like, we're a business and we don't actually want or need volunteers <laughs> because that's not how our business runs. But like, we appreciate it. And we like love fans and we'd like love for you to buy our product and like figure out what it means, what products we could carry for you to buy them. It's just, we've really trained people, especially people who are really mindful about the environment or really care about regenerative food. I like to think of us, I'm definitely part of this, the like omnivores dilemma generation of people who were awakened by those kind of writings. Third plate and yeah. Yeah, the training you got out of that is like, volunteer at farms, shop at the farmer's market, pay attention to farms, like basically like let cater to their needs. And so we're trying to do a little bit of retraining around like, hey, it's okay for you to tell us what you want. We're a business. We're going to respond to your needs as a customer. Either be a customer, invest, or come work with us. But yeah. Exactly. But you don't need to like volunteer. You don't need to... Be sorry to ask a question. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And so let's shift gears a bit because I'm going to be cautious of your time. I think we can talk for hours, but you wrote a book. You just sent it in last week. We're talking beginning of March. It's going to come out the 21st of April, the first one, the second one in December. What's the book about farming and other F-words, which, by the way, is an amazing title. But what's the essence of why should people pre-order in a couple of weeks when uh, the pre-orders go up? Sure. The subtitle is The Rise and Fall of Small Family Farms. So I will say it is about my journey of, you know, the book spans several years. I started writing it in about 2015, 16 You'll meet Chris Newman on his very first farm in Char- outside of Charlottesville, VA. And then, you know, journey across, you'll meet old farms, new farms, big farms, small farms. I promise it's not a Dr. Seuss book. I'm realizing just now that that's what it sounds like. Don't worry. Yeah. And basically, I just, you know, I look at all of these questions. So many of the questions that we've talked about here really closely. I think I, at different points in this journey, really came to... A lot of the questions I had and kept coming back around to centered around exploitation. And I think there's so much exploitation in agriculture, exploitation of natural systems, of farmers themselves and their families, of workers, obviously, for obvious reasons, of the animals and plants involved in agriculture. And just looking, you know, we have this idea of what a good farm is. This idea of like the good farm is very central to the book of just like, you know, If I told you we're fighting for small family farms and you said, yeah, you're thinking of a very specific farm. You're thinking of like a, you know, maybe a few dozen to a few hundred acres owned and operated by a family where the family contributes all their labor and like, you know, earns not an excessive income, but, you know, a stable income. 
they have a very centered focus on the community and feeding people local to them. They're the original environmentalists. They're very mindful about the way that what they do might impact future generations. They're super hardworking. They have this incredible land ethic. They wake up really early, you know, down to like their kids play in the hayloft and they drive the tractor. I feel there's a butt coming. Well, so basically like the point of this book, like what I was doing is just like, can I find that farm? Yeah. Like how close do we get? And in what ways do the farms that actually exist in the world fall short? And it there's a lot of data in there. There's a lot of interesting kind of examination of what's available from USDA, where the USDA falls short in counting farms, which is like a whole other thing. You know, who gets money? Who are we helping when we like go to farm aid? or when we donate to nonprofits, or when we go to the farmer's market even. I tell, I, I'll, spoiler alert, for the first chapter, so it's not that big of a spoiler, but I talked to a, a farmer I know in the Pacific Northwest who has been doing like a market garden, 15 acres of market garden for 25 years, you know, came on at the very birth, outside of Seattle, at the very birth of kind of the food movement, was producing over 200 vegetables regeneratively and sustainably by the time that she, you know, spoiler alert, quit farming, And it was basically like, you know, the most interesting tidbit that she told me was that when she first announced that she was going to quit farming, the number of people who came to her and or sent her an email or something to say like, oh, I'm going to be so sad to not see you at the farmer's market. She hadn't been to the farmer's market in six years. So just like this whole idea of like, you know, all of these things that we learned being children of the omnivore's dilemma of like, you know, go to the farmer's market, get to know your farmer, ask a farmer when you have a question Like there's those ideas that we strive for and then there's what's actually happening. And I think that kind of the point of this book is to just try and understand, you know, we have our ideals and we have in a lot of spaces in agriculture, we let the nebulousness of the ideal stand as just like, you know, this is how when you hear someone from the Farm Bureau say like, we need to do whatever it takes to defend small family farms. And then somehow you hear someone from like the environmental community agree with them and you're like, oh, They must be on the same page and just like how much ambiguity there is in the middle of, you know, what exactly do different people mean by a good farm? And what does that mean for people who think that there's problems with the food system, people who think there's a problem with the farming system and like basically where we go from here? And that's what Farm and Other F-Words is about is basically, you know, is the small family farm really the unit of agriculture that makes the most sense if we're talking about a a hotter, drier future where we need to feed more people better? I have a feeling it's not. (laughs) Deeper book spoiler, I will say, is just like, you know what? Only in America, really, or in America and Europe, do we think that small family farms were ever like the peak of human existence. It's not common in the rest of the world that we like all strive to retire to a farm one day. Most people in the world don't do that. No. And then the second book is like the second part of that. It doesn't have a title yet. I'm working title is like Big Team Farms. It's basically a a playbook of I've called it like the lean startup of farming, where it's just like how to what are big team farms? Where do they exist right now? How are they working? What are their challenges? What are their solutions? etc. It'll be super interesting. And now I would love to end with a few questions I always like to ask. And to start with one, I mean, you mentioned, let's not see farming as an investment, but let's say you somehow magically tomorrow morning are in charge of a a $1 billion or any large amount, because it doesn't have to be 1 billion investment portfolio and obviously charged. And okay, how do we make farming regeneratively, but actually regenerative to the core, meaning including everything, not just soil. What would you focus on? What would you invest or how would you put this money to work? 
How would you prioritize? That's mostly why I asked this question. Yeah, that is tough. And if it wasn't just, I mean, if the main priority is regenerative agriculture is like environmental outcomes. No, I'd say regeneration in general. Like this is much, I see usually ag as a nice Trojan horse to get into a lot of other conversations on inequality, access, health, very wide health, not just physical health, et cetera, et cetera. So if you literally, you have the freedom to invest it, whatever you want. Could all be an ag tech if you really want to, but... Oh, yeah. No, no, no. Definitely not. Well, I guess the other question is, like, what is my timescale for having a return on this money? <laughs> but... So it has to come back at some point. The return could be zero or very low, and it could be very, very long. So you actually have the freedom and space to do 99-year things if you want to. Okay. It's not a 10-year fund, let's say. Okay, great. Because that would make a difference. You know, I think you could do something really interesting with, like, partnering with... I would love to get, I mean, we talk about indigenous leadership and regenerative ag a lot. I think you could partner with, with a billion dollars, you could partner with a tribe and buy a significant amount of land back. And just like, you know, I think the impact that that kind of experiment would have just on people seeing what's possible. We talk a lot about, you know, indigenous communities protect the vast majority of remaining wildlands in the world. And biodiversity while only owning a very small percentage. Yeah. yeah, seed keeping and like advanced seed breeding, so much of that that like is being discovered right now is Ooh, yeah. Yeah, is actually, you know, indigenous knowledge that has been captured or recaptured or repurposed or their role is often erased. So that would be probably my first instinct is just like one buy a lot of land because land is always the biggest barrier and put indigenous agricultural leaders in charge and see what they do like let that i would love to say that i like know how to unlock all the most value and figure out how to do the best stuff but i think chris newman talks about this in a really powerful way so i won't try to paraphrase him but people who have traditionally been without resources or in marginalized positions have built this really amazing skill of operating in the world despite that operating with fewer resources operating, you know, on the margins of communities and fixing stuff and getting stuff. Yeah. And that's the thing is like, I think a billion dollars given to a tech company would be a lot more wastefully spent than a billion dollars given to an indigenous community and get out of the way. Probably that's the best. Oh yeah. And then make sure that you use, I mean, maybe you spend some amount of that money making sure people get out of the way, but yeah, I think, you know, if you could buy back the other half of Oklahoma, and just giving it to local tribes there. If you, you could buy a lot of North Carolina for a billion dollars. It sounds insane to say that, but I think it's true. And, you know, offering more empowerment to like the Lumbee tribe or something like that. The Gullah Geechee on co- in the coastal Carolinas, you could buy not a lot of beachfront for a billion dollars, but you could buy a lot of like coastal upland that you could do some awesome regenerative ag stuff with. And then I think, yeah, I so much of what what we've accepted is possible. And I think carbon markets are in the same place of, you know, we farmers, especially big conventional farmers, sat out of climate discussions and were active climate deniers for decades, decades and decades. And the minute they walk into the conversation and decide to participate, we let them be in charge. What? What is that instinct? Like what? And we know where the instinct comes from, right? From like all of us being trained to like ask a farmer and who can make rules for farmers except farmers? We have to let farmers do it. Would we say the same for an oil executive? Like, would we let the oil industry run their own regulation or? We do a bit, but yeah, I, no, but we at least we know. Yeah. We don't feel good no, about no, it. No. We aren't saying like, yes, we're doing this right because like we're letting. Look at this round table. Yeah. Yeah. I think 
we serve up, right, so many of the possible solutions that we've taken off the table in agriculture, whether it's like communal farming, whether it's changes in the way that we, that land is available and like tax credits work for land ownership and doing, you know, like letting indigenous leadership, I get that pushback all the time, which again is blatant racism of like, when I plug indigenous agriculture, people are like, we can't go back to being hunters and gatherers. Well, one, you're an idiot. Native Americans were not hunters and gatherers. They were advanced agriculturalists. They created corn, which is literally so advanced, we don't understand how it works. Like, we don't understand how it evolved. And they managed incredible landscapes at a size that we can only dream about. Yeah. There are places in Mesoamerica where they have grown corn and other highly extractive crops for 4,000 years continuously. There's no place else on Earth that can, like, make that claim. That can say, we were such advanced agriculturalists that we were able to continuously crop this area over and over again for not a generation, not three generations or five generations, 4,000 years. So the idea that people are like indigenous people, you know, don't have the capacity or don't have the skills or don't have the abilities to be leaders in this is one, just like revisionist history. It's also insane. It also is just like something that we've accepted as, you know, oh, well, White people own all the land, so I guess white people have to be the solution and have to be the people who choose what's next. And that is just, if anyone has a claim to being a successful long-term agriculturalist in the Americas, it goes indigenous people, and then black people, and then Asian people, and then literally white people have never been good at it. We've never done it successfully for a long period of time. We've spent the last, like, two to four hundred years... Extracting. Yeah, advancing technology to lengthen the time period that extraction can continue. To slow down, yeah. And so would you spend some of it on lobbying, like on the policy side of things? You could, could you call it an investment? That's a separate discussion. But would you like bring some of it, let's say, home to where you're now in Washington and, and try to take on the tax part, take on all of the other things? Yeah. So I don't think I could argue that there would be an investment or a return on investment for that. But if your return is... Just like more regenerative act, yes, totally. So on the land tax exemption side, which is some of the worst stuff we've seen, like, you know, for example, Donald Trump got $80,000 off of his tax for a golf course in New Jersey because he like basically mowed the lawn there and called it haying and then got out of paying his land taxes because in New Jersey, you only have to have $500 in sales or like five acres to count as a farm and then get like 90% tax credit. So That, unfortunately, would have to be state by state to deal with. And there is a lot of strong advocates against it, basically because the argument is like, if you don't have a ag land tax exemption, then it'll all just get developed immediately, which is just blatantly not true. But also there is like some weird development pressure there. So you'd have to have a thoughtful strategy around doing that that I don't know if anyone has tried to put together, basically because nobody likes to make rich people mad in America. Um, And then on the other hand, I think there is some very easy, like, I am shocked that there hasn't been more coordination around. There are so many common parties who could push against the way that our ag subsidy system currently works from like, you know, like food, hunger people, hunger advocates. They should be getting the money that's going to farmers. If like the point of the farm bill is to make sure Americans don't starve to death, then farmers should not be getting that money. Food banks should be getting them probably, or we should just regulate companies to pay a living wage would be another option, but we don't want to do that either. You know, like the the far super capitalist purists hate the farm bill because it's all subsidization and market distorting, which like, great, I'll take an ally where you can get one. Environmentalists obviously 
we've very unfortunately seen a lot of environmental groups in the U.S. like just get on board with conventional ag and just say like, I'd, we'd rather work with them than not work with them. Just sort of the impact investing argument of let's not divest from some of the impact. I'm not saying, but let's not divest from fossil fuel companies because we can have a dialogue. And I think there are very strong arguments that that doesn't work, even though you proxy vote and, and all of that. I mean, they don't really care. And divest is starting to scare them. And or the new businesses around renewable energies are starting to scare them more. So I think let's focus our energy on the new businesses instead of trying to transform an old one anyway. Yeah. And I think the easiest place, the easiest inroad to address what's going on in agriculture and to change the policy is just around the basic farm bill risk management payments. Yeah, right. Because I think people don't understand that between subsidized crop insurance and revenue protection risk management programs, you're insured against both bad weather and bad prices. Those two things are inverses. When there's bad weather, there's good prices because there's not a lot of stuff. And when there's bad weather, there's good prices because there is a lot of stuff. So when you're insured against every eventuality, that's not insurance anymore. It's guaranteed basic income. If we're going to have a guaranteed basic income for anyone in America, is it going to be for the 2 million people who own $3 trillion worth of land? I think there's like a real conversation that could be had there that like is not very controversial. That's just like, hey, do we want to give rich people these direct payments or would we like that money to go literally anywhere else? Or at the very least, could we attach, should there be some strings attached to getting this money? Like rather than paying farmers for conservation practices, you have to do conservation practices to get this money. To get anything. Yeah. And one other quick thing, which I think is super hopeful to me and really interesting, is that there actually are some really interesting ag law folks in the United States who are looking really hard at basically doing something that looks like tenant laws in farmland in the United States. So, like, I live in an apartment building. The apartment owner is not allowed to rent me an apartment that's not fit to live in. It has to have running water. It has to have like a toilet and a shower and it has to like not give me cancer or like the roof is not allowed to fall in on me. There's lots of arguments in agriculture that you can't possibly regulate the quality of farmland, but because then no one would buy it, I guess is the argument, because like if it's not a perfect money making investment, then like people won't be interested. The thing is in real estate, it works like that. Yeah, exactly. Like I live in Washington, D.C., and it's not hard to see that people are clearly making money off of renting apartments. And so I don't actually think that's a good argument. And there's people who are working on the idea of having a required minimum quality for farmland to be able to rent it. And actually, we also do that for ownership, right? A private building can be condemned if you don't keep it up, which basically is like a type of repossession by like the government or something. So the idea that there is legal things happening to say you can't just degrade your land into oblivion like there is actually requirements your land is part of a system that is part of a public system that we pay for as a country and hold collectively at some level so yeah no you can't just like burn it all down you're not free to do that we don't live in a society where that's okay so holding people to You know, that would fundamentally transform what it means to be a tenant farmer, because then, yeah, you wouldn't be paying for improving your landlord's property. Your landlord would pay you for that. Like my building employs a guy who does maintenance in the building. That doesn't make this apartment building not work financially. It actually helps it work much better. So, you know, the idea that we would have actual maintenance happening on farmland improve the quality, actually invest in like the professional skill of farming and farmland, you know, maintenance, 
I think there's other ways besides just changing farm bill policy to do that. I think there's potentially legal routes. I think however much I'm a deeply impatient person and impassionate about that future, I think it's probably pretty far off. So we took away your fund, unfortunately, but you have a magic wand. You can change one thing in the ag and food system. What would that be or industry or whatever you want to call it? No question. Enforce all the existing laws because we basically don't. We basically don't enforce any environmental laws on farms. We basically enforce like almost no labor laws on farms. If there was just a serious enforcement mechanism for, I mean, right. I don't know a farmer who hasn't sprayed a pesticide off label. That's illegal to do, but they just don't care. No one enforces it. No one ever checks. You know, at this point, I don't know a farmer who thinks that the organic certification is enforced. I just talked to a farmer who just got his organic certification renewed not too long ago. It was literally just like a guy drove onto his farm, handed him his certificate through the truck window and drove away. Like that's organic certification. So just like any oversight, you know, give enforcement to EPA to regulate pollution Give enforcement to the Department of Labor to regulate how workers are treated, how workers are housed, how workers are paid. Remove all the exemptions from small family farms and just say, like, you're a business and we have expectations for how businesses treat public resources, customers and employees. And now you're going to start acting like it. I think that would be transformative. Act like a business. I want to thank you so much, Sarah, for your time. We have a lot more to discuss, but it will be another one. I'm very much looking forward to the book or the books, actually, and to obviously your work with the team at Sylvan Aqua and to follow to follow your journey. And thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This was super fun. Can't wait to be back. If you would like to learn more on how to put money to work in regenerative food and agriculture, find our video course on investinginregenerativeagriculture.com slash course. This course will teach you to understand the opportunities, to get to know the main players, to learn about the main trends and how to evaluate a new investment opportunity, like what kind of questions to ask. Find out more on investinginregenerativeagriculture.com slash course. If you found the Investing in Regenerative Agriculture and Food podcast valuable, there are a few simple ways you can use to support it. Number one, rate and review the podcast on your podcast app. It's the best way for other listeners to find the podcast, and it only takes a few seconds. Number two, share this podcast on social media or email it to your friends and colleagues. Number three, if this podcast has been of value to you, and if you have the means, please join my membership community to help grow this platform and allow me to take it further. You can find all the details on gumroad.com slash investingregionag or in the description below. Thank you so much and see you at the next podcast.